0: Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Karfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Welcome back to Breast Cancer Conversations. Today, we continue the rich conversation we started last week about anticipatory grief. Last week we focused on how we speak to our children about our terminal cancer diagnosis. There is never a right time for these conversations, nor do we ever think that we would be speaking to our children about our eventual passing. Breast cancer has changed that. What we learned from those conversations last week was that honesty was key and to share information in tangible, concrete pieces. Today we further the discussion with our panelists and turn to the questions children have after finding out that mom, a parent, or a grandparent has metastatic breast cancer. We are all familiar with the saying, kids say the darndest things. But what we learn in today's episode is that children are processing cancer just like we are. They are at various developmental phases of curiosity and being able to connect the dots. Sometimes the questions they ask can even be heart-wrenching, as children probably understand more than we know, or more than we'd like to admit that they know. In case you missed last week's episode, let me take a moment to introduce our panelists. But before I begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this episode, Citizens. We know how important clinical trials are for any stage cancer, but especially stage four. We know how hard it is to find the right one. Your health information is key to unlocking treatment options. That's why we're so happy to tell you about our friends at Citizens. Citizens is a completely free online service that helps you gain access to all of your medical records and now can also help you explore clinical trial options. Curious to know what clinical trials you're eligible for? Join Citizens for free and find out. You can find out more at citizens forward slash SBC trials, and I'll link to it in the show notes below. And that's citizens spelled C-I-I-T-I-Z-E-N dot com forward slash SBC Trials. I am pleased to welcome back to the show Amanda, Anne, Ginny, and Abigail. It's great to be speaking with all of you again. Anne is just a few months shy of turning 50 and has been fighting cancer off since 2009 when she was diagnosed with DCIS at stage 3. She was diagnosed metastatic in 2016 after several amazing years in her early 40s when she was thriving at work, home, and with her health. With lobular cancer in her bones, things changed fast. Being diagnosed metastatic at 45 was devastating, and Anne has worked hard to make the most of a crappy situation. In early February of this year, she went on long-term disability, which has been a huge blessing that allows her to spend a lot of time with her family. She has twin 16-year-old daughters, Rose and Grace. Thanks for being with us today. Next, we have Jeannie. Jeannie is the executive director of the Inflammatory Breast Cancer Research Foundation, a grassroots lay advocacy organization dedicated to improving the lives of those touched by inflammatory breast cancer. This is done by fostering innovative IBC research, educating stakeholders, and tirelessly advocating for both patients and survivors. IBCRF is a web-based organization relying on a group of volunteers working from their own homes. Following a diagnosis and treatment for IBC in 1994, Jeannie became involved in breast cancer advocacy while still working full-time as a mental health nurse. We are pleased to have Jeannie on the show today. We also have Amanda. Amanda is a proud Florida native born and raised in Winter Park, Florida. You may actually recognize her story on survivingbreastcancer.org where she shared her experience with metastatic stage four breast cancer. She is a three time UCF graduate obtaining a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in healthcare administration and health leadership. She is currently an assistant professor at Advent Health University and teaches both undergraduates and graduate students pursuing degrees in healthcare administration. Apart from career, Amanda takes great pride in being a mom of two boys Luke, age 14, and Jimmy, 19. She and her boys enjoy traveling hammocking, hiking, going to the beach, and spending time with her adorable labradoodle Lincoln. Our conversation today is moderated by Abigail Johnston. At the age of 38, Abigail was diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic breast cancer after filling a lump in her left breast when tandem nursing her two boys, who are now 7 and 5 years old. After closing down her legal practice, she moved to Miami to be closer with her parents. She states, I'm astonished at how much has changed, how much we've overcome as a family and how everyone has adjusted. While she doesn't actively practice law, Abigail uses her education and training in a variety of ways for the breast cancer community. Advocating for patients and thrivers, she has started her own nonprofit, Connect Four Legal Services, where she recruits lawyers to do pro bono work for stage four patients. She is also active in many local and national organizations, volunteering and adding her voice to educate and persuade others to connect with and help her community. We're not advocating or spending quality time with her family, you can find her writing on her blog, No Half Measures. I am pleased to have all of these panelists here with us today, so let's dive right in. Welcome to the conversation. The way we talk about our diagnosis to children at any age really requires us to prepare. I love the focus we're taking right now on the correct language and understanding different developmental phases of our children. I'd like to ask Amanda, what were some of the questions your children asked? What were some of the hardest or easiest questions that their minds were curious to know about when you were sharing your story with them?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'll back up for a minute because I, I realized I told you about my diagnosis, but not the story leading up to, and that kind of feeds into some of the questions that my boys had. Um, so like Abigail, I also have a family history of breast cancer. My mom was an early stage um, diagnosi and, and both of my grandparents, so maternal and paternal and, I have been under surveillance for four years with a breast care surgeon, four years. So I was going twice a year for ultrasounds, mammograms. I was going for MRIs annually. And every time I would go, for the most part, it was all clear, all clear, all clear. And all of a sudden it was, you have stage four cancer. And so you can imagine just the rage that, um first anger and then deep deep sadness that um i felt because i i felt like the previous 4 years were pointless um and it's not easy to interact with our healthcare system i mean i teach about it right i'm that's my day job and i am all for reform on every single front um and there are some providers that practice and i'm a firm believer that they shouldn't be practicing. And I didn't have any capacity at the time to think about malpractice or negligence. Um, But definitely something was missed along the way um, for four years to be given all clears. And so a lot of my boys questions, the hard ones were, um, were certainly about mom, how, why, why, Bias is happening to you. You were doing everything you were supposed to be doing. You were doing everything the doctors told you to do. And now you have cancer and it's, it's stage four. There is no stage five. This is the worst possible stage. And so as a parent, I, I felt helpless, right. Um, trying to honor, right. The question, because it's a question that I had to, and, and to, to be able to meet them in that grief and um, just how they were processing through that, um, without answering and being, you know, full of rage and, you know, having having that moment together, um, I feel like there's a little bit of that that can happen, but it it then turns not helpful um, as you're trying to parent through it as well. And so, um, a lot of the questions they would that they would ask me. I would have the response. I don't know. I don't know, buddy. I don't know. And um, here's what I do know. And so I would try to respond in a way that made room for the unknown, but gave them something to hold on to. I don't know why it's, it was missed in, in the, the previous four years, but I do know that I am an advocate for my health and I am taking a, uh, a front row seat and I'm driving the the bus, you know, all the metaphors. Right. And I, I'm going to make sure that nothing else gets missed. And so those were hard questions Um, when they ask things that I don't have the answers to, I might be the one living with it, but they are too. Um, They are living with it and they're living with um, they're living with the unknown and that they're still very young ages are trying to find ways to um, be secure in that. Um, and it's really hard, um, because I've had to surrender so much and I'm watching them surrender so much and, um, it's difficult, but I would say probably the hardest questions are, um, are about what happens when I die. And, um, you know, on one hand, I, you know, maybe there's a blessing in being able to have these conversations with them preemptively. Um, On the other hand, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, They're not conversations that you think that you're going to have with your children, no matter their age. Um, And that's really tough. That's really, really tough. Um, I would say, you know, both of my boys have asked and have asked multiple times since the diagnosis, where will we go mom? If you pass away before I graduate from high school or before I graduate from college. Um, and so I've had to, I've had to have good plans in place, um, conversations with family, um, and ongoing because things change. And, um, it's, it's always at the forefront, right? Where, where am I in my treatment? How is my body responding? Um, what are the next steps? And how do I make sure my boys are cared for well in all of it? Um, and giving them a voice in the process too. So a lot of hard questions. Um, I wish I could say that they were all done after receiving this diagnosis. But it's, uh, I mean, it's ongoing, continually hard.
2: Do you have to temper what you share with them about your appointments or about the possibility of progression? How do you handle that ongoing conversation when you you have had to face those things in recent months?
1: Yeah. um, I try not to process with them. Um, They are not my go-to, right? They're my children. And so if I have anxiety before a scan or before a appointment or I'm waiting for results that will show if things have progressed. I take all of that to my friends and my safe family members. Um, the things that I talk to my boys about are really more concrete. You know, I had an appointment and this is what we talked about, or, um, I got my scan results and this is what, um, this is what we're working with now. So trying to minimize some of that anticipatory anxiety, you know, fear, unknown, all of that. So when I come to them, there's a clear, there's a clear direction or at least a clearer direction than if I were just to be, you know, throwing things out and processing with them. So I I try to go to them when there's concrete news and then let them know what the plan is.
2: Thank you for, for sharing that. Jenny, could we come over to you to talk about um, what was the hardest question that you've received from a child or a grandchild? And then what was maybe the most profound question? And they could be the same ones um, that you've gotten from a child or a grandchild in the context of cancer. Sorry, I should have said that.
3: (laughs) I've I've made that assumption. (laughs) Well, because my I've, I've spanned such a long period of time now since that initial, um, I should preface the thing with um, what I'm going to say with this piece, that I wrote a letter to that grandchild. When I got to a year from my diagnosis, I thought my time was, was probably pretty limited, and I wrote letters to people that had been meaningful um, and who had been really helpful to me during my, my treatment time. And um, I wrote one to her. She wasn't, you know, she was just a little over a year old at that time. And not knowing when she would be able to read that, but definitely not at that age. um, I wrote it, sealed it in an envelope, gave it to my husband. And I said, when you think it's appropriate, please give this to her. I said, I don't anticipate being around then. And I said, put it someplace safe and you give it to her. Well, as time went by, you know, I she got to be like ten, and I thought, man, I can't believe I'm still here. But I had that letter, but nah, ten, she's not ready for that yet. So again, I'd say just keep it there. And I kept putting it off and putting it off. And she was going to get married, and she was twenty, and chose to get married the day after my twentieth anniversary of my cancer diagnosis. I took the letter to her when we went to help with the wedding preparations. And such an experience that was, as I gave her the letter, and of course it was a lot of tears, but it was, I had no idea, I couldn't remember what I'd written in that letter 20 years later. But that was such a neat experience. But the questions that raised by some of her younger siblings, why are you crying? What are you crying about? And they would notice my tattoo marks from my radiation, my little dots. And my daughter was made, made it very clear. I was not to call them tattoos. I was to call them something else. So they were <laughs> my cancer dots and trying to help some of my younger grandchildren understand what I had been through was really challenging because it it didn't compute to them. They only knew me as healthy. Um, And fortunately, even my two oldest granddaughters who are now 26 and 24, don't remember. I mean, the 26 year old was was a baby, Um, but they don't remember that time, of course, and her, her younger sister doesn't at all. But my daughter was diagnosed with early stage aggressive breast cancer at 21. So that brought everything back when that happened. So the two older girls um, were around then. The others, of course, were not yet. But what that brought up lots and lots of questions because by then they knew that many of grandma's friends had not lived. And the fact that I was alive was helpful. But helping them understand that hopefully mommy would do fine too, like grandma had. But I realized how much they've been affected by what I do, even though we live mm-hmm. miles apart, they know the older ones, especially my third, my granddaughter, who's now 13, has really gotten interested in what I do and asks me a lot of questions and um, wants to understand better about cancer. What does that mean? Why, why do you do what you do? And I think it's, had given me an opportunity to hopefully help them understand a bit better. I've been the one that took my two oldest granddaughters out when they were about 14 and 15 for coffee to talk about, are you afraid? Now that you're getting Mm. breasts, the fact that I had breast cancer and your mother had breast cancer, I thought they wouldn't ask their mom, but they might talk to me about it. But I think trying to help them understand has been challenging. You know, the good news is I've done well. But every time I was in the hospital earlier this year because I had two massive blood clots in my lungs, I almost died. Mm. And the terror that came up again because they were convinced the cancer was getting me. And having to help them understand this wasn't, it wasn't cancer. It was actually, in my case, much scarier than my cancer has been. But um, I think, again, um, we were talking earlier about the importance of being honest, when um, they saw pictures of me with all this stuff going in my jugular vein, (laughs) with the blood clots, um, for me to sext and say, you know, I know I look scary with all of this in my neck, but you know, I'm doing okay and um, you know, don't worry, I'll, I'll be able to talk to you on the phone tomorrow. <laughs> Younger kids in particular think everything that happens is their fault <laughs> because mm-hmm. the world revolves around them. Um, and nowadays with the internet, um, you do know that older kids are gonna go check it out. So, you know, if you're not honest, they're not gonna trust you then because they're gonna think, you're trying to hide something and that's never a good way to manage things.
2: I'm so glad that uh, those blood clots resolved and you're still <laughs> here with us. That must have been a very scary time.
3: It was. This is my third time to have massive blood clots. Second in my wow. Life. before it was a two and a half inch clot in my inferior vena cava. So it looks like I'm wow. coagulated for life. <laughs>
2: Wow. Well, and and I I would be remiss if I didn't say that um, once you've been diagnosed with cancer, that you do have a higher than average risk of blood clots. And a lot of times uh, the medications we're on can raise that risk as well. So anybody who has been diagnosed with cancer or had cancer treatment needs to be alert to those things. Um, You're also
3: at risk for another... Type of cancer since I had endometrial cancer last year after twenty some years. Yes. The good news is I got to live long enough to have a second one.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. There's always a silver lining. There's always
3: absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) All
2: right, Anne. Can I um, pose the same question to you um, about? hardest question, most profound question, or questions that your your twins have brought to you since your cancer diagnosis?
4: Well, I think that the best questions, I think, are when they, they ask questions, they're just totally normal, because then it just feels like they're getting that sliver of normalcy as they develop their own breast, as they you know start to become young women. Um, so that's been interesting. I think the hardest questions have been, and since I was diagnosed the first time in 2009, they've seen both of their grandmothers um, have cancer. One of their aunts have can- breast cancer. Several of my friends, now a whole, you know, nearly everybody I know on the on the internet seems to have breast cancer, um, their father to have cancer. And so after someone called one night to give us their, you know, that they had been diagnosed and asked their questions, one of the girls asked me, "How old do you think I'll be when I get breast cancer?" Mm. Oh, and that just ripped my heart apart because, my, of course, my hope is we find cures that you know. And that, and that was part of my answer. You know, that's why I'm doing the advocacy work. That's why I think awareness is so important. And you will be scanned regularly. Um, but I think that that night was probably one of the lowest nights, just watching from their perspective everyone seems to have it. And, um, and I miss the days of being naive. And, um, and I hate that that's been taken from them. That's one of the things that I definitely grieve, is that, um, that they, they're so familiar with what breast cancer is, and what it can do, and why it's so difficult to cure. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, the other one that's really obvious is, um, you know, will you die from this? And, you know, I think when you're igni- initially diagnosed and going through chemo and you have those hot spot moments when you're in the hospital or it progresses, or I've been in the process of changing treatment for the last few months, I think that that one's the other one that's been, you know, really hard of, you know, balancing that we all die sometime, um, which, you know, seems so cliche with we're doing everything we can so that that doesn't happen. And, and that you will never be able to say that I quit trying, like that I'm doing everything in my power to continue pushing that needle as hard as I possibly can. So, and then the other thing that I would say is, and I think you know others have touched on this as well. You know, we we talked about washing your hands and being careful, and especially in this COVID environment. One of my daughters is extremely sensitive to; she is terrified that she is going to bring something home. At the same time. She's a 16 year old girl who's all about me and wants to get out there and live her life. And and I honor that, you know, in so many ways. And so we've had a lot of discussions this year about you're going to be exposed at school. You're going to be exposed when you're out there in the world. um, And if you bring it home, you're not the reason that the family gets sick. Like I don't want them to live with that guilt Um, that's probably my biggest fear right now is if we do get sick, you know, I hope that we can't tell where it comes in our house, um, because I don't want them to live with that. And, and that's such a burden that I see, particularly for one of the girls. Um, and, and she does all the, you know, she wears the mask. She's very good at that type of thing. And she has a lot of empathy as Amanda pointed out earlier. I think they've learned that by living in a family that's had somebody terminal for the last four years, but sick for many years off and on before that. So, you know, I think to me, that's the, I don't have a good answer for that other than just to keep talking about it and making sure that there's that open environment and open door where we can talk about anything and we don't hold one another, you do your best you can. And we all know that, you know, there it's a possibility and we're going to have to live our lives within that. And that's a bit, that's been a tough place to be this year. There's no easy answers for that one.
2: Have you found, Anne, that this time of, of uh, progression and having to change medication, has it affected your children differently?
4: I'm not sure that they see the day in and day out differences of it. Because um, I went from Ibrantz and Faslodex. I was on that for about three and a half years. And I just started Affinitor and Letrozole, I think, or whatever they put me on with that one. Um, so I'm just like I've done all the mouth sores, lost weight because you couldn't eat for a couple weeks, um, all that great stuff. I definitely see that, that there's like a layer of fear in there in them of, OK, if mom's not eating, A, that's serious because I love food. Um, and, you know, what does that mean and how, how can we help with that? So, um, you know, I definitely see that in them.
2: All right, well, we are going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the more tangible. I'm talking a lot about talking, about managing emotions. Um, And I can say for a parent of younger children, I'd say the, the majority of the work that we do around that is helping the boys to identify and name their emotions. Um, Because for the little guys, they're not always able to articulate um, those things. And so um, I did want to recommend if anybody has young children, that if you Google conscious parenting um, and the feeling buddies, Um, that's been really helpful. They're these little dolls and they have different expressions on their face and that's pretty much all they are is just kind of a, a vague doll like body, but the face is pretty much the only thing that is, um, you know, detailed. And so that way we can say, okay, are you feeling like this doll today or like this doll today? And, and that has really helped to, to help them name their emotions, um, and one thing, my my dad's a licensed mental health therapist, and so he helps us a lot with identifying it. anger is often the first emotion. Um, and Amanda talked to before about feeling rage and just feeling that anger. Anger is often the first emotion, but it's not what's really going on. That anger is typically the veneer that's over the sense of powerlessness or over the sense of helplessness or over fear. Um, and so I have found that for, for my kids, because they're little, because they often interact physically, that a lot of what we have to do is sit with them in, in that emotion. Although I am sure that that is also something that works for older kids and adults as well, just to be present with someone, not fixing it, not telling them what they need to do with it, but just sitting there with their emotion we do a little bit of, you know, okay, are you feeling this way, buddy? Are you feeling that way? Um, Which is helping give them a different vocabulary. Um, And frankly, I feel like it's given me a better vocabulary to talk about my feelings. Um, There's something about trying to help someone else articulate something that then makes it more real for us. Um, But the question I want to send through the panel is this question of what are we leaving behind? Now we can talk about that from the the broad, the legacy perspective. And I think each of the panelists have talked today about the legacy that they're leaving behind. But um, one of the handouts that we were able to put together for this presentation for you to take with you is a bit of a checklist of all the different types of things that you might want to to leave behind and which each individual person on the panel is doing. And so I'll start with you, Amanda, if you want to talk a little bit about what you've put together to leave behind from your boys and why.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, and of course this is in process, right? Um, I I'm a writer and so I, I have little notes and journals and and books and little things that I'm writing for each of my boys. Um, just things that I've learned along the way and, um, you know, memories I want them to hold on to. And so I have, I have those things going for them. I've also been, um, really not just since my diagnosis, but since losing my husband really burdened to, um, make memories with my boys. And, um, that was something a counselor told us, um Years ago, and and we're all still in counseling and go as needed I'm a big proponent of that and I want to normalize that especially with young men um, Just like you said Abigail naming feelings and all of that um, But something a counselor told us was always have something to look forward to um, And that can be hard when you're faced with a diagnosis like this, but that meant that we did a lot of traveling and, and even staying local, you know, we're in Orlando. So we'd go to the beach and stay for a weekend or we would drive a few hours and, um, go see a new, a new area or drive to the mountains. And I felt like every break from school, every holiday, you know, we were, we were packing in something to do to make memories. And, um, that has continued after this diagnosis, um, Within reason, I've had, you know, we've had to accommodate different things with bone meds and cancel a ski trip and things like that, but they love, they love the water, right? So we can go to the beach. And so a lot of the leaving is memory making and then capturing that through Instagram or making, um, chat books. So pulling in pictures and captions and having, um, multiple sets of these books. So they each have their own set of memories of things that we've done together. Um, and so trying to be intentional about capturing those memories, but also being very specific toward each of them um, individually and, and really using the time to tell them what I want to tell them. And so ultimately I'd love to write a book that's in my, I, um, Uh, Yeah, we'll see if I get to that, but really write a book and dedicate it to them with just, you know, musings from my heart and, um, and we'll see. Yeah, but lots, lots of, lots of memories and lots of things to, um, to leave them with. Oh, you're on mute.
2: You're speaking that into the universe here, Amanda. That means that we're all going to hold you accountable to writing that book. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Amanda. <laughs> Jenny, how about you? What Other than the beautiful letter that you talked about that you wrote for your granddaughter, um, have you also put away some other tangible things for your family?
3: Things have changed so much in the time period from when I was initially diagnosed till now. You know, social media didn't exist back in those days. (laughs) Um, So one of the things I started doing was taking lots more pictures than I probably had before. In fact, I drove people crazy at family gatherings, making everyone sit down for family pictures. because my mother-in-law died just exactly a year after my diagnosis. Um, March of of each year for for four years in a row were just these, I knew something awful was going to happen. You know, March one year, my daughter tells us she's pregnant, wants to get married. The next March, it's, you know, I'm diagnosed with breast cancer. The next March, my mother-in-law dies after two massive strokes at age 70. And I'm like, you know, Forget <laughs> I'm done with it. But I began realizing I had the last pictures of my mother in law at a family gathering. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was so grateful to have those. So I began every time the family got together, I made everybody <laughs> sit down and taking pictures, and I was really becoming a pain. I they let me know. But I wanted to have those pictures I thought, you know, we not I think I was so aware that we don't know what's gonna happen. And that those are tangible memories. Now we've got all of this social media stuff so that Facebook reminds you daily (laughs) what you were doing X number of years ago, but we didn't have those things. So one of the things we do try to, since we live 600 miles away from our grandchildren, we try, (laughs) this last year has been challenging with COVID, but when we go to visit three to four times a year, we're there for about a week. Um, don't stay in their house with ten, with nine children in their house. If you don't stay in their house, it's a little crowded. Plus you mess up their their routine, which is not a good thing to do. Um, but we have we started out, my husband took the two older girls to breakfast on their well, as we got to have more and more children pretty soon, we couldn't just take them on their own. We'd have to stay for a month to do that. Uh, <laughs> we, and he needed help when we got to having more kids. So the two of us would, one morning we take the kids who are five, four to five and over out to breakfast. And that's a really special thing to them to get to go for breakfast with grandma and granddad they're incredibly well behaved. So it's, it's, it's actually quite easy, but they get so excited about being able to go and order their own breakfast. We go to a bagel shop that we all love, but, you know, I hope that's something that will always resonate with them since when there's so many, thank goodness we only have one daughter. (laughs) We can be able to keep up with another family of a bunch of little children, but, um, since we can't do a lot of one-on-one kinds of things with the kids, I just hope those will be special memories for them. Um, and at some point, I don't anticipate living uh, to the ripe old age that some of my uh, family have done, uh, given all the health issues I've had. But I want them to remember you know, that they had fun with us, that we did fun things together, but that we read lots of stories and and that there are lots of pictures of us doing things together. And I make sure we do have pictures of us individually with kids, and they, we make sure they have copies of some of those and try to develop um, relationships with them um, that are a little more individual. Because And the other piece, and some of you, as you, you might, when I get into this, we do many long years ago stories with our grandchildren. Uh, it started with my father-in-law when our daughter and her cousins were little. That before they went to bed, when we had family gatherings, they, he would tell a story about himself as a child or the parents, these girls' parents as children. And so we passed that along. Now with our grandchildren, we have you have to lay in the dark to listen to them, and they hear, and then they have to guess who the story was about. And so I hope that's another, I know that's a really special memory for my daughter of her her grandparents, which my father-in-law is still here at 96. <laughs> but um, I hope that's also a very special memory for my grandchildren uh, to think about those many long years of those stories.
2: Those are lovely examples. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, I, when I had recently become a parent, I read the line that um, children spell love t-i-m-e so they that that is what kids are, are looking for is that time and i can tell you my my grandparents on one side of the family always took us out individually for a meal on our birthday and i'm one of six so they also had some of those uh challenges with spending individual time with us but um That that was the highlight of our year, highlight of our birthday, that we got to go out by ourselves to a real restaurant with grandma and grandpa. So
3: I'm sure they will remember those for years. I wanted to throw in one thing back to a previous um, comment when we were talking about um, how do kids process things, our emotion pieces. I was so distressed that I had people tell me that my daughter's pregnancy the year before caused my cancer. Because they knew stress, they were just convinced stress caused cancer and if she hadn't done that, I wouldn't have cancer. And I was terrified someone would say that to my daughter. Mm-hmm. The last thing I ever wanted her to think was that her choices, while they I didn't appreciate them at the time, um I never Thought that that caused my cancer a year later, um, but I had some people say that to me, and I thought, what an awful thing for someone to comment. And I thought, if she ever hears that, you know, I would be devastated to think, have her think that she caused my cancer.
2: Hmm. Did you ever talk to her
3: about question. that? Oh, I did. Sorry
2: one,
3: um, more recently okay. because. I thought at this point, it's been long enough, it was probably fairly safe to say something about it. Um, and she said she did have someone say that to her at one point, that she, if she hadn't done what she did, that I would never have gotten sick. And I said, well, because we just had the conversation, I said, you know, people talk about stress and cancer. And I said, you know, it, by all rights, if stress caused cancer to come back, mine should have been back, you know, eight or ten times by now because I've lost both my parents. I've had two grandchildren die. You know, you name it, um, and I'm still here. So I think we have to be really cautious when we're looking at. We like to blame something, and that's really dangerous.
4: We and had. I think you were going to tell a story. Yeah, we had. We did IVF. And somebody was kind enough to say to our daughters, and we've just started having the discussion about them. Well, it could be all the drugs that your mom took during IVF that caused her cancer. I'm like, I I don't care. I would take all the drugs again tomorrow to have those girls I mean, that they are the reason I get out of bed in the morning. Um, So absolutely, I just couldn't believe that somebody could say that. And I, I totally appreciate the stress comment too. I have heard that one many times over as well. So frustrating. And would
2: you like to share Sorry. what you've uh <laughs> no worries, would you like to share what tangible items you've set aside for your girls?
4: Yeah, um, so like Amanda, I also write a lot, um so I'm definitely writing journaling um <laughs> hopefully some of them they don't find for years, but um a few years ago, as we started doing more and more experiences very intentionally, I started collecting postcards. And so if we came back from a ski trip or the beach, I would, the last thing I would do is go buy two postcards. And I write a note about what I loved about them at that time while we were there. And so there's just a whole box full of postcards of trips that we've done together. And then it kind of grew from there. So now like, you know, I have one of my daughters really wants to go to Iceland. So when somebody went to Iceland, I asked him just, could you pick me up a postcard from there, a blank postcard. And so then it started where there's more aspirational ones as well. And it's, I found it really daunting to write the letters. Um, You have to write letters for Inheritance of Hope. And I've done that and I've done it a couple of times now, but I think the postcards are just kind of a nice snippet way. And maybe those are chunks that they can, you know, look at one or two and put them away until they're ready to, to pick it up again. And then I, I've kind of had a, a wish list of things that I want to make sure that I get for them and tuck away like a graduation gift from high school, although I really hope I'm here next year. Um, but, you know, whether that's earrings or a necklace or whatever. And then at the same time, I want them to have like a little bit of that sense of humor. And so one of my daughters <laughs> always loves those fake geese that people put in their yards. Um, and she's like, when I buy my first home, I want a fake goose. (laughs) So I I have a fake goose in a box that only my husband knows is there. And it's, you know, in 30 years or 10, 15 years, when she buys her first home, please make sure she gets this fake goose that she will look at it and probably scratch her head and go, why did mom leave me this? So I have written out how many times she's, you know, commented driving down the road that she, she can't wait to have a fake goose in her yard one day. So. And her, her sister will be mortified. So, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's the exact right type of thing for her as well. So, um, you know, I think it's important to treat them as individuals throughout throughout the whole thing. So, um, that's been really important, but a lot of letters, um, I quilt and I've tried hard to start on baby quilts for those granddaughters that I'm pretty sure granddaughters, grandsons that, you know, medically I've been told you probably won't see that happen. Um, I'm having a hard time cutting the first piece of fabric to start on that. And maybe that's my winter goal for this year. But, you know, I think it's, you have to kind of figure out the pacing too. I don't want it to become like this death cloud over me all the time either. So, you know, I try and do a few things here and there and then set it aside for a while. So.
2: Thank you for sharing that. I I think it's so important to remember that um, in putting together things that you would leave for, anybody you know don't, don't forget to be who you are and if a sense of humor is part of who you are or how you deal with things that just where it goes back to telling kiddos honestly what's happening I think having whatever you do mm-hmm. reflect who you are it is, is so important um kids are so good at figuring out if something's genuine or not right um so I wanted to show you guys uh the boxes that I have prepared for my boys. So this is just a, it's a card box for, it was actually for a wedding. Um, So I got each of them the box and had their names put on it. And um, in addition to um, letters um, and the handout that we uh, put together for you guys actually has a whole list, almost a page full of ideas for times that you might get a card for. So things, um, and to Anne's comment that sometimes a whole letter is hard to sit down and write, but a postcard or a card, like say for graduation or for their first baby or when they got their first job or all those times, the way I've tried to think of it is all the times when you would pick up your phone to call your mom, having something to open for that particular moment. Now, certainly we can't think of everything. Um, so I've got some thrown in there that are just, you know, whenever you need an extra or pick me up or whatever. Um, and so the idea being that on those times where you might reach the the phone to pick up, um, reach for the phone to call your mom, that you could reach into a box to pick out a card. Um, I've also found these, um, Super cool little books where you like fill something in. This one is what I love about being your mom. And and so this one, it's, you've got the sweetest blank I've ever blank, right? So this one is for one of my boys. And as the sweet, you have the sweetest smile that I've ever seen. So I I like these because they have little um, prompts. Um, And I've also gotten a couple of these. This one was just off of Amazon. This is called My Mom. Her stories, her words. And again, it's just a prompt that then you can write. So this one is, Mom, who were some of your favorite relatives and what made them special? So that um, I've, I've also found to be helpful, again, with the prompts. Like instead of just sitting down with a blank sheet of paper, because I could stare at a blank sheet of paper for hours. Um, what I've also tried to do is when I am particularly low about something um, dancing with my boys at their wedding. Not sure that that's going to be in the cards for me, but when I am thinking about something like that, I try to sit down and write a letter for them to open at that moment. If I don't get there, if I'm not physically there, they would have something to open, uh, in that moment. So, um, I think all of those things are, it's, it's so individual. And what ends up resonating for you is not something that might resonate for something else. Um, A friend of mine who lost her husband to cancer um, told me at the very beginning of my diagnosis that it's important to remember to save pieces of you in a variety of different ways. And so certainly writing something down is important than having your handwriting on a piece of paper, a card that you selected, but also not to forget to preserve your voice. And she told me about how there was this, you know, back when we had answering machines with tapes, um, that there was this tape of their answering machine message. And it was literally her husband saying, you know, leave a message for blah, blah, blah. And they played that over and over and over and over again until it was worn out. (laughs) Um, And so that does remind me that we are all three-dimensional or 12-dimensional or whatever dimensions there are, but that were more than just what's on a sheet of paper. And so remembering to preserve your voice as well. Um, And there are a variety of um, companies that can help you do that. I did um, a video through, it's called Through My Eyes, uh, T-H-R-U, My Eyes. And they are um, a nonprofit out of New York And back when I did it, you know, it was on zoom and it was this weird thing that someone was going to interview me on zoom. Well, obviously that's much more commonplace now. And a video through, through my eyes was simply my face, my words, they, um, engage licensed mental health counselors or psychologists to ask the questions. But there are so many other things that you can do on your own. I mean, even just to the point of videoing yourself on your phone and just talking about what, whatever comes to mind so that it's you, your mannerisms, the the word choices that you would have. That's just another piece of, of who you are. And so the one thing I wanted to say about this, this idea of leaving something tangible is that there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. It's mm-hmm. just your answer. Um, It's your answer in terms of individuals, like Anne was saying, each of the people in our lives, if it's children, spouses, godchildren, grandchildren, they're all different. And so whatever you do to preserve your memory with that particular um, child, it could be a duck for their yard. It could be something completely different, but it depends on your relationship with that um, person. And so just like we've talked about not talking to kiddos or talking to other people that honesty is key. I think that how you leave and what you leave and why you leave those things, whatever they are to whoever it is that it's important to be genuine there too. And it's important for it to be a real reflection of who you are. So I've been trying to watch the time, even though, I mean, we could sit here and talk about (laughs) these things for, for quite a while um, but I, really quickly, I want to go to each of the panelists and, um, somebody did this to me at the end of a panel that I was on. So now I'm doing it, um, is to think of a word, what word exemplifies what you've talked about tonight and what you want to leave with everybody tonight. Amanda, can I go to you first? Just whatever off the
3: top or- of your head.
1: The first word that came to mind was surrender. Mm. Thank you. Jenny, how about you?
3: Oh gosh. Uh, Genuine.
4: And what about you? Tough question. Um, Nurturing.
2: Those are excellent. And my word that I want to leave everybody with is how I started. If you replace grief with love, I think that that helps to frame how you do anything, whether it's grieving, whether it's leaving a legacy, just think of that through the lenses of love.
0: Hilary Stanton Zunin is an expert on the effects of grief on school-aged children. Her and her husband are based out of Napa, California and wrote a book called The Art of Condolence. In her writings, she states, the risk of love is loss and the price of loss is grief, but the pain of grief is only a shadow when compared to the pain of never risking love. Thank you, Amanda, Abigail, Jeannie, and Anne for being on the podcast today and sharing such powerful personal stories with our listeners and our community members. I do hope to have you back again to continue the conversations with love and gratitude until next time. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at SurvivingBreastCancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations.
1: Until next time, keep on thriving.